Let's pray together. Oh God, one more time. Lingering just a little longer in Your house, one more time, come to us. Let Holy Scripture intersect our lives right now for the glory of Jesus alone. We pray together. Amen. The American philosopher and poet George Santayana once wrote, Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. The events of the last two weeks in the death of the Pope and the election of his successor have reminded me that the apocalypse warns its readers that the world will not remember its past and thus will be condemned to repeat it. And so during the past two weeks, during which the global media have all but genuflected on our television screens with nonstop coverage from the seat of the Vatican, I've taken the opportunity to review and return to some of J.A. Wiley's book, The History of the Waldenses, and another little classic which quotes extensively from Wiley called The Great Controversy. The reason I've returned to these two books in my library is so that I would not forget the past. A past that obviously has been forgotten by this generation, and a past that seems more credibly clear now than ever before. The world will be condemned to repeat one day, perhaps not as distant as we once thought. All because we have chosen to forget those dark, dark ages when church and state embraced and enslaved and exterminated. When those who stood for the truth suffered. Are you prepared to suffer? In the heart of Romans 8, you will now read a stunning pronouncement about human suffering. For some reason, I have read over this. I've gone over it, over it, over it. I've never, never seen it until this last week. But we must miss it no longer. Open your Bible, please, one last time this school year to Romans, the book that has been our preoccupation all this journey long. Romans chapter 8. Given the times and the fact that this generation now living may perhaps be called upon to suffer in ways we have not envisioned possible before, this treatise on human suffering in Romans 8 is appropriate for you and me. Open your Bible, please. Romans 8. I'll be reading today from the New King James Version. That means if you came in here without a Bible and you'd like to follow along, this is the same translation. Just pull the Bible, the Pew Bible, just in front of you. Pull it out. Turn to page 761. That would be Romans chapter 8. And I want to pick it up in verse 16, please. Romans chapter 8, verse 16. And the Spirit Himself, that's capital S Spirit, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. All right? The Spirit Himself, the, the, the mighty third person of the Godhead, who now, for the first time, substantively speaking, He's appeared twice, just, just tangentially, for the first time now appears in Paul's logic and argument. And by the way, when Paul introduces the Spirit, the Holy Spirit explodes 19 times in just Romans chapter 8 in the New King James Version. 
So, it's talking about the Spirit here. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. That's our inner cognition. That's the way, that's our psyche. That's the way we, we connect to a being outside of ourselves. The Spirit now bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs. You know what an heir is? Hmm? My mother-in-law, that would be Karen's mom, had her will rewritten a few days ago. It's gone through several amendations. And in that will, she has carefully stipulated how the heirs of her family and her estate are to be treated. An heir, as you know, is someone who inherits a fortune. What are you smiling about? And by the way, she very carefully spells it out in the will. And I am very sad to report to you that I do not appear in a single line in that will. It's Karen here, Karen there, Jerry, her older brother here, Jerry there, grandchildren here, grandchildren there, but not a word about Dwight. I am not an heir, but I'm getting over it. It's okay. <laughs> what is an heir? An heir is one who inherits, who inherits the estate of another. That's an heir. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He says, look, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of what? Catch this. It'll startle you. Heirs of God. And you and I have run across, run straight through that line, and we think it's talking about some little celestial collection of, of prizes that God one day is going to bestow upon us if we're faithful. Are you kidding? Paul is not talking about celestial goodies at all. He's talking about God, the construction in the original language. We inherit God Himself. Now, what's wrong with that inheritance, huh? God Himself, Almighty God. The Spirit bears witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If. Now, here comes the bombshell. Ladies and gentlemen, this is it. I never saw this before. Read straight through it over and over again. Here we go. We become heirs if indeed we suffer with Him that we may also be glorified together. Now, hold on. Hold on. If indeed we suffer with Him. Can you believe that? We become heirs if we suffer. Now, wait a minute. You're saying, Dwight, I'm not even sure. How do I have that status as a child of God? How do I have that status? Oh, we missed it. It's in verse 15. You've got to go back real quick to verse 15 before we get to that bombshell. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Look, at Paul says, when you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you, had, you switched masters. You're no longer a slave to say, no longer in bondage to fear and guilt. No, 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 no. You've got a new master. No longer that little S spirit of bondage. But you received the spirit of adoption. Now, I've got to tell you that when Paul, when the Roman readers of Paul's letter get to that line, that just creates warm little fuzzies in their hearts because that is a, an extremely meaningful metaphor to the Romans. Let me quote a, a, a New Testament scholar here. I'll put his words on the screen. In the first century A.D., an adopted son, get this, did you know this? An adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father. Now, look, some of you here are adopted. By the way, so am I. I'm adopted. You didn't know that, did you? I'm adopted. And I wish to God that everyone here would be adopted exactly in the same way Paul is talking. 
So here, here, here's this uh, scholar. It's F.F. F. Bruce. In the first century A.D., an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his father's name and inherit his estate. Now, here's the punchline. He was no whit inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. That adopted son rises higher than any biological product. Wow. So when Paul says, hey, I want to remind you that you have the spirit of adoption, he's saying, because you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, you now have an adoptive father. You get his estate. You get his name. You get the whole nine yards because you've been adopted. Hallelujah. Verse 15, see, that's what he's saying. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. You know why he puts it there? Because when it finally hits you that you've been adopted by Almighty God, you want to be just like a little kid back in Paul's day and throw your arms around God and cry out, Abba. That is a term of endearment. In fact, let me show this to you. If Paul were writing in the English, if he were writing Romans today in English, here's how he would write it. You have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Daddy, Father, Abba. It's an Aramaic word. It's the word that little, that, that little child, as, he, as she prepares to throw her arms around your neck, it's that word, it's the name of endearment. Papa, Daddy, Abba. By the way, Hebrew-speaking homes today still use Abba for Papa. Abba, Daddy. Oh, but, but also, by the way, the Jews in the time of Jesus, never in the time of Paul, the Jews would never have used this word, Abba, for God. Which is why its Christian usage in the early church is so dramatic. There is this warm portrayal of a very approachable God with the, word, with the name Abba. You may not have known this, but there are now... Scholars who believe that, in fact, when Jesus, when Jesus taught the model prayer to his disciples and they were speaking Aramaic, that Jesus, in fact, always used Abba for the Father so that the prayer went, our Abba, our Daddy who art in heaven. That's the only way scholars can explain how a Greek-speaking Gentile church could embrace an Aramaic word and incorporate it into their liturgical vocabulary. How else can you explain this? Why are you guys using Aramaic? Because that's what the Master told us. We're to call God Abba. And in fact, Mark, whose gospel is targeted, as you know, at Gentiles, Mark is the only one to tell us that in his hour of supreme anguish in Gethsemane, Jesus cries out, Daddy! Daddy, if it's your will, take this cup away. So how do you inherit God? You do it the same way Jesus did. You call Him Abba. You call Him Daddy, Father. And I want to tell you something. There isn't... Hey, Steve, is this true? There is not a dad alive whose heart does not thrill and melt when his children approach him and call him Daddy. In fact, as far as I'm concerned, if you want to call me Daddy till my dying day, I am not offended at all. I love it. Ah, so now, now, now you read verse 16. 
For the Spirit Himself, now it makes sense, for the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Here comes the bombshell again, can't get rid of it. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him. Paul's language, ladies and gentlemen, is incontrovertible. Take out your study guide. I want you to get this so that you'll never forget it. This teaching has been long ignored, but I want you to see it. Pull the study guide out. You got a study guide in your, uh, in your worship bulletin? Pull it out, please. And those of you that are handing out the study guides, would you please make sure that everybody gets a study guide? Let me just say to, to those of you uh, who are watching on television here, if you go to our website, you see it on the screen right now, our website, www.pmchurch.tv. Click onto our series from Romans. It's called Wine and Milk. And the title of uh, today's teaching is Putting on Airs for Love. You click onto that. It's part 19. You click onto that and you'll have the same study guide. I, I, you need to get this, please. Start writing. Language incontrovertible. Here it goes. If we suffer, write it in. If we suffer, then we inherit. This is going to catch some of you flat-footed and by surprise as it caught me. If we suffer, then we inherit. Keep writing. No suffering, no inheritance. All right? The highway to heaven goes straight through hurt. The path to paradise goes straight through pain. You can only get there by suffering. Only by suffering. Keep your pen moving. Paul's construction in the original language is utterly clear. There is a condition. Write that in. There is a condition to our inheritance. And that condition clearly is suffering. You cannot get to heaven without it. Keep your pen moving. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian's journey. You will suffer. Read Paul's lips. You will suffer. Which I hope comes as brave good news for those of you who are suffering today. I know some of you are suffering. Some of you watching right now. Some of you listening right now. You are in intense personal suffering. What kind of suffering is Paul talking about? Guess what? He doesn't tell us. He just says any suffering. Perhaps Paul would be comfortable with Lewis Smead. Lewis Smead's definition of suffering. The ethicist. In his little classic, Love Within Limits. These are the words of Smead's. What is suffering? I like this definition. Some, in fact, you have to fill it in. Keep your pen moving. Some synonyms that come to mind at once are pain, tribulation, sorrow, anger. But what all suffering really comes down to is the experience of anything we want very much not. Write it in. Not. We want not to experience. To want to be rid. R-I-D. To be rid of something with such passion that it hurts. Early Thursday morning, I learned about the tragedy. And so Thursday morning, I made my way down to my neighbors, Larry and Jackie. This Thursday morning, because on Tuesday morning, their boy, Scott, was killed in a car accident on the way to work, leaving behind three young children and a, and a heart-crushed widow. The funeral this morning, was this morning, 10 o'clock at Trinity, Evangel uh, Trinity Lutheran here in town. How did Smeeds define suffering? What all suffering really comes down to is the experience of anything we want very much not to experience. Cancer. Divorce. Loneliness. A loveless marriage. Dementia. Unable to find a job. Unable to pass a class. Unable to pass your boards. Failing in your career professionally. 
fear, poverty, death, suffering. How did he put it? Anything we want very much not to experience with such passion that it hurts. By the way, with such pain that we groan. Those are Paul's words. Drop down, drop down to verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Verse 23. And not only nature. Know also that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Okay, God is my adoptive Father. I belong to God. We too. We even ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Come on, folks, give, give me a break. Figure this out for me. Hmm? You tell me. Why would God ever make our inheritance contingent upon our groaning and our suffering? Huh? I mean, what kind of a God are you to insist that we suffer before we get to heaven? It's a fair question. Enter now one of the most well-known and beloved lines in all of Scripture. Verse 28. For we know, for we know that all things... All things work together for good to those who love God, who are called the called, the adopted ones, who are the called according to His purpose. Please note, ladies and gentlemen, Paul does not declare all things good. Nope, nope, nope. Cancer is not good. It is evil. Death is not good. It is an enemy. Divorce, suffering, ditto, ditto, poverty, ditto, ditto, ditto. But they can all work together for our good. In fact, would you write this down? I love the New Living Translation's rendition of Romans 8.28. Write this down, please. And we know that God causes. Oh, I like that. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. God causes everything. God causes all things. Whatever it is that you are experiencing and enduring right now with a desperate passion to be released from it. Whatever's happening to you right now, whatever it is, God has caused. God has ca God will cause it. God will cause it to work for your good. Amen. By the way, <laughs> this is really academic. You can, you, you can take the whammy off of God if you want, but it's really academic. God lets you suffer. God has let you suffer. He could have stopped the suffering. But he did not. He could have said, no, 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 no. Don't, don't, let her, don't let him go through that. He did not. He said, let it go. God has let you enter through the doorway of suffering. He let suffering enter your own doorway for a reason. You know what the reason is? So that he can shape you into the likeness of the Lord Jesus. That's why. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. I don't see that anywhere that we, in what we just read. Nope. It's in the very next verse. Verse 29. Take a look at this. You never saw this, did you? For whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. I want to tell you something, sir. Ever since the day you, you squalled for the first time, madam, the, when you gasped your first breath, from that day to this, God has had one passion and dream for you, and that is that you might be shaped into the very image of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, would you write that down, please? Suffering shapes us into the image of Christ. I mean, God has, been, God has led you straight into this. He wasn't tricking you. He's not mad at you. 
This is the way to go. This is the only way you can go. In fact, you know what? When the Lord Jesus Christ himself was here, it was precisely this doorway that he had to pass through. I mean, this, this, just, this verse just stirs me to my depths every time I read it. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Look at this. Speaking of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, that would be when he was here, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Now, hold on. Though Jesus was a capital S son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he what? Say it out loud. By the things which he suffered. He had to suffer. He could not get there from here without going through the doorway of suffering. Nor the way to heaven. Jesus couldn't get there, and neither can you. We have to learn through suffering. Why, 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 why? I found this verse just this last week. It's in your study guide. Let me put it on the screen for you. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Take a look at this text. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh when He was here, okay, He suffered, we know that. Arm yourselves, fellow Christians, followers of Jesus, arm yourselves also with the same mind of Jesus, for He, she, who has suffered in the flesh, in the body, has, woe, has ceased from sin, that He no longer should live, she should no longer live the rest of her time, His time in the flesh, for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. When I go into suffering, come on guys, when I go into suffering, that suffering is designed to strip me free from that which has come out of my, out of my, just my hungry lust. I gotta have this for me. Suffering begins to snip, snip, snip. Cut me loose so that I might live according to the will of my adoptive Father in heaven. I mean, it's the old story about the goldsmith who was staring into this molten cauldron of precious metal. And here he is, heating the fire up hotter and hotter and hotter, watching the dross and the dredge being separated from the gold. And, and a passerby suddenly calls out, Hey, 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 Mr. Goldsmith, how do you know when the gold is purified? To which the goldsmith replied, When I can see my face in the reflection. That's precisely what Peter is saying here in 1 Peter chapter 1. Look at this, verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. You are suffering. Peter says, I know it. Why am I suffering? Ah, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The fires of suffering shape the soul of the Christian. Now, I want you to see this. Do you have it in your study guide? It's, it's a, a blessed assurance from the classic on the Sermon on the Mount, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. Do you have, is it there in the study guide? Let me, let me read this in your hearing. The trials of life are God's workmen to remove the impurities and roughness from our character. Their hewing, squaring, and chiseling, their burnishing and polishing is a painful. This hurts, God. Why am I going through this? Oh, it's hard to be pressed down to the grinding wheel. But the stone is brought forth, prepared to fill its place in the heavenly temple. Uh, now, get this. Upon no useless material does the Master bestow such careful, thorough work. Some of you are going through hell right now. I need you to know that you obviously are precious to the God of this universe. You are precious to Jesus. Look what He's doing. He's letting you suffer. You must be a diamond. You must be Gold. You must be worth more than the whole universe to Him. 
Only his precious stones are polished after the similitude of a palace. Ah, hallelujah. One more line. The Lord will work for all who put their trust in him. Isn't it something? Precious victories will be gained by the faithful. Precious lessons will be learned. Precious experiences will be realized. Ladies and gentlemen, something happens inside of us when we suffer. Something we cannot experience any other way. Only through suffering. Only. Do you know what that something is? That something is a someone. It is through, in fact, write this down, please. It is through suffering. It is through suffering that I am ushered into an intimacy. Oh, that's a word that we need. We need on our radar screens. You know what intimacy means? It means being taken deeper with God than you have ever been taken in your life before. Intimacy. It is through suffering I'm ushered into an intimacy with God that cannot be experienced in any other way, which is one of the most overlooked teachings in Romans 8. Nobody talks about it. But I want you to see it before we conclude. Paul's portrait of the Trinity. Keep your pen ready to move. The triune God who meets us in our suffering. Okay, we'll take, them, we'll take the Trinity in the order they appear in Romans 8. So it's the Holy Spirit first. Let's take a look at the Holy Spirit. Drop down to verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, in our suffering. Hold on now. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings. You think you're the only one groaning in this business of survival on this planet? You are not alone. The Almighty Third Person of the Godhead groans, groans with you. The Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Verse 27, Now He, that would be the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit makes intercession for the saints, the adopted children of God, according to the will of God. Ladies and gentlemen, for those anguished moments when we cannot even articulate the depth of our pain, the immensity of our suffering, we can't even say it night and day, When we groan inaudibly or we moan incoherently, do you get it? The Spirit cohabits. He cohabits our pain. He wraps Himself in our groaning. And then He ascends to the Father and He says, Father, she doesn't even know what to say. He cannot even pray. But out of those groans and moans, Father, this is what the boy is saying. He speaks in the language of divinity. And he says, you, can't, you haven't heard a word. She's just sobbing. She can't even speak. She's so choked up in prayer. Father, here is what she really wants. Wow. In the words of James Montgomery, prayer is a soul's sincere desire, unuttered or unexpressed. The motion of a hidden fire that trembles In the breast, prayer is the burden of a sigh, the falling of a tear, the upward glancing of an eye when none but God is near. The God who moans and groans with our moans and groans. Write it down, please. The Holy Spirit is the God who groans in us. He's God in us. All right? A stirring portrayal of the Trinity. Number one, the Holy Spirit is the God who groans in us. And now comes Paul's portrait of the Father. Splashed upon... On the canvas of probably the best known, uh, if not the best, the second best of all Scripture. Verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? Okay, what are you going to say? If God be for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? 
He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Having emptied the treasury of heaven in the gift of Jesus, can you imagine God being niggardly or stingy with His treasures with you now? Hey, come on, come on, come on. Let's just say your mother. Let's say your kidney went out. Let's say both kidneys are gone. You're dead. But your mother decides to donate one of her kidneys to you. Do you imagine yourself ever wondering later, ever wondering, I I wonder if mother really loves me and cares for me. Give me a break. You've got to be kidding. After she's given a kidney, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That Greek word for delivered up is the identical word the Gospels use for Judas delivering Jesus up, the priest delivering Jesus up, Pilate delivering Jesus up. Paul takes that same word and says the Father delivers Jesus up. Oh, and I love it. I love the way Octavius Winslow put it. I think you've got it in your study guide. Look at this. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Write it down. The Father is the God who gives for us. He is God for us. So what do we have? We have the Holy Spirit is the God who groans in us. He's God in us. We have the Father who is the God who gives for us. He's God for us. And finally comes Paul's portrayal of the Son. Write it down. The Son is the God who goes with us. He's God with us. Emmanuel. I'm telling you what, ladies and gentlemen, take a look at those. Take a look at those. Whether you're going or coming, does it pretty much come across to you, too, that God is on our side? Look at that. The Trinity. The triune God. Have mercy. Where is it about Jesus here? Verse 35. Oh, I love this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul takes now every category of human suffering that you can come up with. Paul's going to now deal with it. Okay, give me any suffering that you've been through. Give it to me. See if I don't cover it. Who now, verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, external, or distress, internal, or persecution, human, or famine, natural, or nakedness, impoverishment, or peril, dangerous circumstances, or the sword, even people coming and saying, we're going to kill you. We're going to kill you. Not even the sword. Paul fingers every category of human suffering and says they're all impotent to separate us from Christ's love. In fact, go on to verse 37. Why? 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 For we know that in all these things, all these categories of human suffering, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. You know, in the Greek it reads, we are super conquerors. You you think about it. Paul could have just said, hey, look, look, look. I know you've been through a lot of suffering. You're a conqueror. Just be happy. You're a conqueror. Paul will not let us settle for a conqueror. He says you are super conquerors. More than just tolerating evil, you have taken the next step and you have transformed evil. Your God has transformed evil into good. You're a super conqueror. Write it down. Because of Calvary, we know, we now know, hallelujah, that God can take the worst. Write it in. God can take the worst in our lives and turn it into the best for our lives. Which is why suffering is not only something to be endured, you can actually embrace it. 
Thomas Schreiner, the commentator, I love how he puts it here. Keep your pen moving. The point is that the love of Christ is so powerful that it turns our greatest enemies into our friends. Isn't that something? Our greatest enemies into our friends. Embracing suffering as if it were a friend. I must tell you now, thank you, Jesus. I now understood. I now, I now understand what I did not understand before. I couldn't figure out Philippians 3.10. I mean, I understood the first part of Philippians 3.10, the passion for Christ. I said, God, give me this passion. But I always stopped after Paul's words in Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ. I stopped right there because I didn't like the next line. Because Paul says, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings. And I'm thinking, what is this? Some kind of sadomasochism? I don't want, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to suffer. But now I realize, it, did you get that in your study guide? I realize now that that and belongs there. Philippians 3.10, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. Because, ladies and gentlemen, Christ's love transforms the enemy into a friend. God causes everything to work together for the good of His adopted children. Thank you, Jesus. Ah, verse 38. For I am persuaded then that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mark it down, please. This chapter begins with no condemnation and it ends with no separation. No condemnation in Christ. No separation from Christ. Good grief. Grief really must be good. If it draws us this close... To Almighty God Himself. Amen. Hallelujah. I want to tell you a story. Before I tell you the story, though, I want to read these words from Desire of Ages. Do you have them there in your study guide? God never leads His children otherwise, and they would choose to be led if they could see the end from the beginning and discern the glory of the purpose which they are fulfilling as co-workers with Him of all the gifts that heaven can bestow upon men and women. Fellowship with Christ in His sufferings is the most weighty trust and the highest honor. I want to know Christ and the fellowship of His sufferings. That's a gutsy prayer to pray. I'm not quite sure yet whether I can pray it and mean it. But I'll pray for you and you pray for me because it's clear if we refuse to walk through the door marked suffering, we have no path to heaven. George Matheson, the preacher, was in love. You know what I'm talking about. He was in love, beautiful young woman. The subject of his dreams, they were going to be married until one day tragedy struck. A mysterious blindness came over George. But never mind the tragedy, for he still had the love of his heart in his life, and they would share life together. And then the second tragedy struck. One day in his darkness, he hears the approaching footsteps of his fiancée. 
she stops in front of him and clears her throat and then announces to Matheson that she searched her heart and she just cannot find it there to marry a blind man. And as her footfall echoes out of his life forever, eyes that cannot see, he weeps tears that he can only feel. Her love had let him go. In his own private agony, Matheson one day groped for a pen and began to write, O love that wilt not let me go. I rest my weary soul in Thee. I give Thee back the life I owe that in Thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. For I am persuaded, I am persuaded that there is nothing in all of creation that shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please, when we too suffer, be there for us too. Amen.